continues his exploration of the world of cartography. Today, he looks at the challenges that mapmakers face in keeping up to date as territorial disputes rage, borders change, and new countries emerge. And he considers the view that maps and atlases give us of the wider world and our place in it. Well, if loving maps is a bit of a religion, and I think that it probably is, then this place is definitely our cathedral. I'm walking down Long Acre in Covent Garden in London's West End. And there it is, across the other side of the street, the HQ of all that is fabulous and mappy, Stamford's. It's a beautiful old building. I mean, it just looks the part. You, you can read in Sherlock Holmes. Now, now, Holmes, we must go to Stanford's and find the maps of the places where they're going off to some mystery or other. And it's featured large in travel writing. There's been all sorts of people, Bruce Chatwin, uh, Paul Theroux, they've all come here and all mentioned it in the writings. Uh, this is the shrine. This is Mappy Central. Pick a country, any country, and it's almost certain that somewhere in this shop there's a map of it, and quite possibly several. Then, of course, there are all the atlases which bring together those countries in a single exquisite volume to give us the bigger picture, a view of the whole world. But, of course, there are as many different versions of that view as there are maps and atlases. Put yourself in the cartographer's position. With all that information, towns and cities, roads and railways, rivers, mountains, contours, borders, land use and landscape, what do you choose to include on the map? And, perhaps more importantly, what do you leave off? A cartographer's job is a tricky game of balance. And yet, instinctively, you know when they've got it right. Andrew Dean, Stanford's retail manager, has, over the years, developed quite an eye for maps and atlases. And he showed me one of his current favourites, a map of the Red Sea, produced by a Hungarian cartographer. Right. The thing that makes this map interesting um, is the information on on all the wrecks um, in, the, in the Red Sea. I suppose it just being another map of a, of a region. Yeah. She's gone one step further. Um, and I'm not quite sure where she's got the information from, but you've got down here all, all, all the wrecks. I don't know whether she's thought, right, OK, there's lots of people who go diving, that's what I'm going to produce this map yeah. for. Or whether she's just thought, actually, you know, it's just a, sort of an intellectual curiosity, I, I'm going to include something on this map that isn't on any other map. Yeah. She's got this one in oh, the middle oh. there, the middle of the SS Dhaka. Bracket is not yet found. I mean, that's a real invitation to dive, yeah, isn't it? it? Just to just get going there. there. Yeah. yeah. For many of us, buying a map is the essential first step in visiting somewhere new. But for some people, the map is enough of a journey in itself. And Andrew has encountered many customers who prefer their travels to be just journeys of the imagination. We've had people who, who always who wanted to collect maps of islands, for example, and we had to. Um, we had to try any islands? Any, any island. Oh, as long as it had lots of water around it. That yes, was as long as it was surrounded by water, that, that ticked that guy's box. Um, and he would ask us... Any scale? I don't think he was that fussy, actually, Mike, about scale. He just wanted maps of islands. Wow. And, um, what are you doing with them? I have no idea. And I don't really care, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, but you do, you do get people who come into the shop and they just want... They want the whole idea of, of travel. And, and obviously maps is a hugely important part of that. They just like standing in the shop and, and looking around, and it's the old wanderlust thing, I guess, isn't it? Mm. Oh, absolutely. The imaginary looking at a map can set you off. Yeah. You're there. Well, exactly. Even though you're in a common garden on a, on a yeah. winter's day. It's 
Yes. Your mind is, is roaming free yes. across the landscape that you're looking at, really, That's right. isn't it? Hang on, what's this? One person whose mind and feet have wandered across landscapes and cities the world over is writer yeah. Jan Morris. From the Himalayas to Venice, she's made a point of keeping all the maps and atlases that she's accumulated in more than 60 years of wanderlust. This is it. Fabulous. Now, these are the sort of things I like. In Jan's home near Llanastimdwy in North Wales, drawers, bookshelves, filing cabinets and even cubby holes under the stairs overflow with travel books, maps and atlases. It takes a bit of searching to find it, but eventually she unearths one of her favourites, a kind of three-dimensional bird's-eye view of Stellenbosch in <laughs> South Africa. What fun. <laughs> it is brilliant. I can lose days doing this. There you are. Oh, wow, isn't that gorgeous? That was a good one, wasn't it? Oh, that's lovely. It was good because it did have recognisable portraits of the buildings. Am I reading that right? It almost looks like Jan Morris Park. I think there's Park named after me there. <laughs> 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 It'd be good if there were, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that, what is that? Jean Marais yes, Park. Yes, yes, yes. That's not why you went there, was it? No. Just no, pay homage. Absolutely but... not, no. <laughs> For Jan, every one of the hundreds of maps and atlases is significant. And not just as an aid to navigating a city or country, but as a repository of memories. They immediately emerge as important, don't they? Before you go, obviously. Yeah. The first thing you look at is not a guidebook, but an atlas, as to see where the place is. They're more than a souvenir, really, for me. They, they really do represent, for me, part of the city, a particular city, that I've visited and written about. And so I, I brought it back here, and there's a fragment of it here, tucked away in this library. In pride of place, within an easy reach of the desk where Jan writes, is one of the best collections of world atlases I've ever seen, including many editions of the famous Times Atlas, which was first published in 1895. And these are all the successive editions of it, by the way. So this, this five-volume one, that's the that's one from the, the 1950s, isn't that it? That was the first of the modern ones, really, wasn't it? And you had, a, you had a bit of a, an honourable part to play in its uh, genesis, didn't you? Only because I suggested the name that they gave it, the mid-century. I was big on mid-century at the time. I'd just come back from Chicago when mid-century was all the rage. <laughs> so I passed it on to the Times. <laughs> in those days, the Times Atlas was published by that doyen of map-making, Bartholomew's in Edinburgh. Their eye for detail and sense of what made a map beautiful to behold are ravishingly clear in the mid-century edition. Bartholomews have since been subsumed into Collins Geo, who still proudly published the Times Atlas. The comprehensive edition is the size of a small coffee table and weighs in at five and a half kilos. That's almost a stone. But while the mid-century atlas was painstakingly hand-drawn, the modern edition is produced digitally from a vast database of cartographic information. This is pretty much come through from data so there'll be still be some um some corrections that we have to do jethro lennox is publishing manager at collins geo in glasgow what we tend to do is when stuff comes through from the database the the editorial team will have a work in that see if there's any uh type that might you might find some type clashing and there's not too bad actually i mean you can you can see that actually there's not loads of work. You can see the type there is, um, yes, is against the border, so yeah. we'd have to move those types, and uh, okay, you know, yeah. so it's all it's all fitted in. It does um, look. I mean, I'm not trying to be snarky, but it does look 
computerized, you know, in a way that yeah, what I, I love about the old Bart's maps was that exactly. sort of beautiful and, and, sense I mean, of what, what we've what we try with the Times um, Comprehensive Atlas is to try and almost the challenges to make it look as good as the old ones which yeah. is kind of goes against actually what we're continually trying to do is innovate we're trying to do these great new products we're trying to kind of push the boundaries of things but at the same time for some of the Times Atlases we're actually trying to get as nice as the old ones just because the old ones were so nice whether it's done by pen nib or mouse the only constant for atlas cartographers is constant change. The world never stays still, as disputes rage, borders alter, new countries emerge, and city names mutate, even in comparatively stable parts of the world like Spain or India. Twenty years ago, after the collapse of communist Eastern Europe, Collins Geo's senior information analyst, Roger Pountin, had to radically redraw the map. But he's still at it today. Maybe southern Sudan becomes the next country in another year or two, you never know. All sorts of things going on. Yeah. Kosovo becomes de facto independent, and so we have to start spelling the names in Albanian instead of Serbian, and all sorts of things go on. Mm. Where are the big you know, sort of cartographic nightmare hotspots of the moment, then? Well, Kashmir has been one for a long time. Uh, raised in recent years, another, another one was South Ossetia yeah. and Abkhazia, which are, in theory, parts of Georgia, but the Russians basically support them as separate countries. Uh, you've got Transnistria, in, which is part of Moldova, but really it's largely ethnically Russian and it operates as an independent country, in effect. That's like a long strip along the river, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. it's very much so, yes. And there are, still, there are several others throughout the world like that. With some areas of dispute, like a good example is the Sea of Japan and the East Sea, whereby we will get delegations who will actually come to us um, and um, lobby us to actually change in favour of their, their national position. Really? People try to lobby you, basically? Absolutely. Sheena Barclay is the Managing Director of Collins Geo. A World Atlas is probably one of the most burned books on borders or, or impounded books of 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 any list. I mean, it's certainly one, the one that attracts the most attention. Um, I mean, as soon as you put the word map or cartography into something on an export sheet, for example, then the chances are it will be impounded or will be brought, set aside f for um, attention in a huge number of countries, some of which would surprise you. I, I mean, India Gosh. and China are two, you know, quite high-profile examples where they very much like to um, control the world position um, that's represented and will not allow publishing within their country that doesn't adhere to their view. So, I mean, obviously, uh, Jammu and Kashmir is one, one area um, where, which affects, obviously, Pakistan, China and India, um, where they would have a cause, you know, they would have cause where they would want to actually look at how you'd represented it. And this is where we try to take the de facto position, so we try and represent it as it as it's operating on the ground, but we're also reflecting the dispute that's that's happening there, and where the dis which nations are actually disputing that that particular territory. Borders which are in some way disputed are shown as dashed lines in the Times Atlas, and there are plenty of dashed lines in the sections devoted to the Middle East, around Israel and the Palestinian territories, for example. With the capture of Jerusalem from the Turks in 1917. And soon after, the Balfour Declaration, which laid the foundations of modern Israel, 
The British government certainly played its part in drawing up the map of the Middle East. And in Jan Morris's library, I find myself looking at the very atlas that they used to do it. And this particular copy belonged to Lloyd George, David Lloyd George. Well, uh, uh, who, at the time of the uh, British campaigns in the Middle East against the Turks, you know, which led to the capture of Jerusalem and all mm. that, he sent this to General Allenby. He sent a copy of this to General Allenby, who was a commander of the British forces there, uh, to encourage him. And he, he said he'd get more out of his Atlas of the Holy Land than any number of maps sent by the War Office. And so I've kept this. I've, I brought this somewhere else. I've kept it because I think it's very interesting as a link between mapping and politics and history and even religion. The whole book embodies it all. And they're, they're beautiful maps too, as a matter of fact, some of them. And to think that this, upon this particular volume, was based the whole campaign in the Middle East, which led to a convulsion in the world history, really. Some map has a, a great emotional impact upon almost everybody. Everybody has some feeling about a place, don't they? Mm. A place they grew up in, a place they were married at, a place they mother died at, the place they just had a grand time in. Every place in the world has that effect on somebody, sometimes a more powerful effect than others, but to a writer in particular, and especially a sort of emotional writer, sentimental writer like me, it has a very powerful and very enjoyable effect. I love them. On the Map was presented by Mike Parker and produced in Wales by Jeremy Grange. And tomorrow Mike examines the links between cartography and war as he visits a military site that for decades was just a blank space on Ordnance Survey maps. That's at the same time tomorrow.